Welcome to the Movie Heaven, Movie Hell podcast with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that uh, like to talk about other filmmakers' work. Uh, I'm back after a, a break. I was at the International Broadcast Conference in Amsterdam uh, with my day job, with work for the, uh, for the, for the last... Um, podcast that you did on Jim Jarmusch which uh, it was actually really nice to uh, to listen to you and, and Clive Ashenden who kindly covered for me that day um, talk about a filmmaker that, that you know although I'm very aware of uh, didn't know that many of his movies so I, I actually um, learned quite a bit from that podcast and uh, you know that's part of why we do this stuff isn't it to uh, to perhaps be inspired to watch new stuff and 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 or go back and revisit old stuff. So um, I, I found that very enjoyable. So thank you for thank you and thank you, Clive, for uh, for stepping in and uh, covering me while I was away. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, um, you're back now. Yeah, absolutely. The, the the other thing about that that I didn't realise, which I thought was quite interesting, I'd never made the Tom DeSillo um connection before and of course you know when it comes to indie filmmakers uh you know i really like that guy's stuff and when i teach i used to make it absolutely mandatory that um my students before we'd go into their first production would watch living in oblivion because yeah. you know i know you've mentioned it in other podcasts i, I think you mentioned it maybe in the one with mike tack and uh you, you know that film is is sort of the perfect film for anybody going into independent filmmaking to watch because exaggerated as it is all of that shit has happened and i've seen all of that shit happen for real so uh, um good movie when you say exaggerated it's more of a case of it's a whole lot of things that have happened or will happen or could happen all put into the one scenario and yes that many mishaps would never happen on the one film set you might get <laughs> one, one of those elements <laughs> you 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 might get the um they're up their own ass actor or you know the situation where you can't get a take yeah. because of the actors or or court background crew or, and yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Very funny film, very amusing, and a very good commentary he gives on that film um, as well, I might point out. But uh, okay. anyway, sorry, I've got off topic already. <laughs> we have indeed. So our pick for K is Kubrick. Yay. And now this is a, a pick by myself because uh, I am a big Kubrick fan. Um, when I was um, learning about filmmaking, he was... Uh, one of the directors who was pointed out to me and it was uh I, I got to watch all these films now like everybody else i had grown up watching Kubrick films like 2001 and full metal jacket well i was aware of full metal jacket because of the um advert you'd get at, at the beginning of uh, vhs tapes of the rental tapes where they had the track um everybody knows about the bird and mm -hmm. I, I remember i just remember that trailer yeah, I remember that as well. <laughs> Spartacus as well, because that was a film that used to get shown like every bank holiday. And Absolutely. so so that's, you know, that's how I sort of, I came more aware of him uh, around that, you know, when I was sort of getting into filmmaking. And of course, in 99, 
Eyes Wide Shut was coming out. So all the stories about him came out in the press again about how he was a um, like a hermit that he just he didn't have any um, contact with the outside world uh, that he was a total control freak that everybody who worked with him had a really bad time and you know there's all these old press stories that came out and of course and then what happened was the same year he died mm-hmm. and then suddenly you know no more Kubrick films I know and you know not that there was many in the first place I mean yeah. you, you, no you there's know. only 13 in total 13 in total, bearing in mind that it spanned from, what, the early 50s to the late 90s. So um, That's right. Yeah, he had quite a a career. I mean, um, for me, uh, I mean, obviously on these podcasts, we do quite an eclectic, uh, varied bunch of of picks so far. You know, everything from indie to arty to abstract to commercial. You know, we sort of... um, talked about both old and new filmmakers and lesser known ones. But I mean, certainly, you know, Kubrick is one of those that's considered the master or one of the masters of cinema out there um, or was out there. Sorry. Um, I have to admit for me, uh, my exposure to Kubrick, um, he was one of, if I have to be absolutely honest and, you know, not try and be all pretentious and whatever on this, it took me, it wasn't until I was older that I appreciate, started to appreciate Kubrick. Yeah, that's, that is true for me too. Okay, good, good. Because, uh, you, you know, I, I, when I, growing up, you know, always with the sort of, you know, even the older film directors, the, 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 the Hitchcocks and the John Fords, and of course, you know, Spielberg and, and whatever, those were, and Scorsese, those are sort of my, my heroes and whatever. And obviously... I was aware of who Kubrick was, but the films of his that I could actually see uh, growing up and never really initially uh, until I started to understand the craftsmanship a bit more, um, never particularly resonated with me. They always felt, they always left me a little bit cold and, you know, they all seemed a bit sort of clinical and cerebral and, you, you, you know, not not warm like a like a Spielberg movie, for example. Just to sort of to talk about that point, um, everything was about precision. It was all about you know you know exploring a scene to its umpteenth degree. Yeah, and so you know that so spontaneity, warmth, kind of was pushed out the window. But what we got instead was you know these amazing. Vistas, uh, you know, great camera work, great editing. I mean, just talk about like um, a shot like um, the bone being thrown up in the air and it comes down as, a, as an orbiting space station. Amazing. Yes, no, absolutely. And the thing is, well, it's not just a space station, but it's a nuclear weapons platform. So it shows you from all that time what had happened that we had, you know, the amount of our evolution and we had gone from one weapon, which was a bone, into another. And so it's that's what we sort of we got from those films where all the spontaneity and the warmth was kind of taken out of it. Yeah, 
No, absolutely. I mean, he was he was definitely a master of the craft. Um, obviously, very very well versed in photography and all of the many art forms out there, which which he he you know was very very good at um, combining into into these you know masterpiece films. I mean, it wasn't you know it wasn't really until I got to film school. Um, that I started watching and and having a massive sort of appreciation for his work. Um, and, uh, y- y- you know, sometimes I do think they are slightly overanalyzed, I have to say. I mean, I saw uh, Room <laughs> 237, you know, the documentary about The Shining. And, yeah, I uh, saw that one too. Yeah, I thought some of the theories were a bit, I was like, ah, oh, come on. You know, he wasn't trying that. You're just reading into that, you know, with a few of them. But uh... Well, this is the thing, because a, <laughs> a lot of his films, especially The Shining, is open to interpretation. It's what you bring to it. Very much. And the thing about uh, Room 237 was the fact that it was like film theory gone mad gone insane yeah absolutely it was yeah <laughs> it was uber film theory <laughs> yeah every theory was up on that but the, the thing was i thought was quite clever was the filmmakers actually showed you stuff which was they were saying well actually even though what they're saying is kind of weird and crazy it kind of could be possible i mean look i mean the whole theory about i mean there's a theory that's been going around for years that Kubrick was in on the faking of the Apollo moon land landing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh... And and the thing was, he's not allowed to talk about that, but he wanted people to know that he was involved in it. And hence why in The Shining, there are, you know, posters of the moon and, uh, you know, and Danny wears an Apollo leather, you know, jumper. With, yeah. You know, it's just, wow. But the thing is, but the thing the thing is though about that is that because Kubrick is such an uncontrolling character that he would have chosen that um, jumper. There is a, you could say there's something like he might have been poking fun at that. That might have been a rumor that had been floating around for years that he was aware of, and he was just poking fun at that. But then it's just maybe he just saw the jumper, and it's a very nice jumper. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure quite how I feel about that, because obviously I'm kind of a a bit of a fan of the whole space race thing anyway. So it's like, I don't know. But I think I mentioned in a podcast before that, you know, The Shining is probably one of my favorite films of his. But it took me years to get it, if you know what I mean. I, I, you know, the first few times I watched it when I was probably younger than I should have been to watch it. But you know, I really didn't quite get it. You know, I was expecting it to just work as a sort of straight horror movie, which it does to an extent. But, you, you know, I never saw the, um, the 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 other Kubrick layers in there until much later. <laughs> yeah. My um, experience of The Shining was that I'd seen it several times, especially on Channel 4, and I didn't find it scary. Right. And I actually... Shut, I had I actually brought a copy of it with me when I was filming uh, Blood and Roses, and we watched it on location. Now the location it had that um, it was very atmospheric, and you think, wow, what a, that would be the best place to watch it. it would scare the shit out of you. And the actor who watched it with you know a couple of the crew thought it was boring. Mm. 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> Going back to my experience of it, I remember the first couple of times I watched it, I didn't find it that scary. Then right. one night, I bought it on DVD and I was sitting there in the living room, lights off on my own in the house, and it scared the shit out of me. And I think if you're, you just get into that mind frame, it, it really it, it sinks home. And that can be told of all of his films. They, they take you several times to get into them. You have to watch them more than once. And the thing as well is that it grows with you. My experience of 2001 was I hated the opening bit, the, um, the Dawn of Man with the monkeys. Yeah. Hated it. <laughs> I would always wait. I was always going, oh, come on. Let's get to the spaceships. Because I was yeah. a big sci-fi fan and I love space. And um, But then going back to it after doing like, you know, film training and everything, I loved the the Dawn of Man stuff. I thought that's like, you know, the great, one of the great parts of it. And that's another thing as well. It's not your sort of traditional storytelling. It's, you know, four different sections all put together. So it's not a yeah. free act structure. I mean, you have the Dawn of Man, then you have um, the Moon Base, then you have the Jupiter mission, and then you have the Stargate sequence. No, absolutely. And the only thing that ties all of those four bits together is the monolith everything else you know you could take them out and they could be their own little story if anything the second part was was the short story by um oh god people are arthur c clark thank you yeah <laughs> <laughs> which was called the sentinel and it was yeah. just that bit but they built everything else around that they expanded it yeah no absolutely i mean when you know obviously i was a big star wars guy and <laughs> so when, when, when i as a kid you know and when i first saw um 2001 you, you know that's kind of what i was looking for so obviously i was i was a bit disappointed <laughs> but you know at the, at the same time always totally appreciated the um uh, you know, the, the, the special effects. And of course, you know, later started to appreciate the film a lot more when, when I could sit through it and, and, you know, give it, give it the time and the headspace that, that, that his films deserve, you know, <laughs> and, and not, not always, you know, I think he definitely makes films for adults, not kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the thing as well is that um, he has such a legacy technical wise because if it wasn't for 2001 we wouldn't have had star wars no absolutely what was it spielberg called it his generation's big bang or whatever yeah. i think was his quote something like that and um, well, he, he yeah. did said that uh 2001 was the film that took him out into space no nothing else no imac experience actually provided that same or inspiring experience than 2001 yeah. But then let's talk about other technical things like the Steadicam. Yes. He popularized the use of Steadicam with the Shining and Full Metal Jacket. Absolutely. Um, I mean, he's Dolly Trap, uh, Dolly Shots, sorry. Brilliant. I mean, think of the Dolly Shot in Paths of Glory when uh, Kirk Douglas is walking oh, through. Oh, past the trenches. Yeah. He's walking in the trenches, yeah. past the soldiers. And you see it get from both perspectives. You see it looking at him and you look at seeing him from behind. And it's just, it's amazing stuff like that. And I think that his budgets as well, I 
have been quite low. I yeah. mean, he had he has the freedom I think most directors would love to have, that he could have the time to go out and shoot what he wanted and as much as he wanted. Because um, Eyes Wide Shut took over a year to film. Oh, absolutely. I was on a short course about camera work and one of the guys who came on to sort of teach, he was a focus puller that worked on Eyes Wide Shut for two weeks From because what he was telling me was that they he was changing crews a lot. He would get somebody in for a little short while and then then somebody else would come in. I don't know if they would get the experience in burnout or if he just, I don't know. It, it seemed to be a weird way because if I get a crew on board, I, I tend to like to stick with them. Yeah, <laughs> no, the I get whole it. Project. Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know he went through um, cast members. There was a couple who dropped out and had to be replaced, and then all their stuff footage had to be reshot. And yeah, it just sort of seemed to take forever. And but the thing is, I know Eyes Wide Shut isn't that well loved film of his. If anything, people I think actually like it. it. I like it as well. And it's not just because I've seen Nicole Kidman naked. I actually like (laughs) the film. (laughs) But the thing is, um, I think what it was, I I remember at the time I was working at a cinema. And this is another Kubrick connection for me. I was working in a cinema in Bromwood, which was owned by Julian Senior, who was Kubrick's friend working at Warner Brothers. He was in charge of advertising. And, And I remember one of the ushers he wanted he wanted to go in and see the orgy scene because right. he had heard this was like oh it's you know you know it's it's the best thing you've ever seen it's you know it's this massive orgy and lots of, and then he came out and he went god that was boring but that was not what the the story was about no, <laughs> it wasn't exactly. about an orgy scene it was about you know uh infidelity and you know how lovers can hurt each other which actually i suppose um contradicts a little bit what i said about how i found his films you know quite clinical and not necessarily about uh humanity and all this but but that just shows that i'm wrong there because i was thinking i was when i was thinking about this i was thinking well no lolita you know there's a lot of humanity in there and whatever but actually you make a good point eyes wide shut when you look at what it's actually about is quite a humane film so yeah well yeah. a lot of his work is i mean take dr strange love i mean it turns what everybody else would have turned into a very serious film into a comedy oh, brilliant and a very comedy, funny yeah. comedy well again he kind of he kind of worked in he was one of these guys he kind of worked in every genre and uh, i think it was probably uh I think the director, Ben Wheatley, I saw an interview with him and he kind of said that, you know, Kubrick almost became a genre within himself because even though he worked in all these different genres, they weren't, none of them were typical of that genre. You know, we've already no. said about 2001, no. for example. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a good example of that is I hate period dramas. I hate costume dramas. I right. cannot stand watching them. Yeah, I love Barry Lyndon. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the things I was going to say, which I think is quite an interesting, this is coming off of what you were just saying, and I think it's quite an interesting question that's raised, or I'm raising here about Kubrick, is um, 
obviously, as we know, he inspired a lot of our heroes as well, you know, from, from, from Spielberg to Cameron to Ridley Scott, whoever, you know, they all liked, liked his films and uh, were somewhat inspired by them. Um, do you think that Kubrick or, or any, do you think that anyone else would be able to get in today's movie system and today's movie thing would be able to get away with the mercurial um, kind of finicky nature of Stanley Kubrick. I mean, to an extent, you know, we know that uh, David Fincher does, you know, loads and loads of takes and all this sort of thing, but he's still he's still tied to particular timescales to get things done by and etc. Do you think that, um, you know, the way Stanley Kubrick worked would, would be tolerated in today's world? No. And that's because the control was taken out of the director's hands and it's given to the studios or producers. I mean, um, I mean, just to make these sort of films now, because they're all sort of mid range budget films these days it's either low budget or high budget there's there's not that mid-range film anymore so um the luxury of time is sort of taken away because either you don't have the money or if there's a lot of money there's a release date it has to be out at this date and so it's just a case of going out there and you know getting the film ready i mean just take an example of um Fantastic Four that's come out recently. I mean, what a mess. What a mess. And it's just the end of the day because either they got the wrong director on board or they didn't believe in his vision, so they went back and changed everything. Yeah, they reshot and, an awful lot of stuff, apparently. For the yes, act. they did. Yeah. The way Kubrick came up, he was an independent filmmaker first. He did the Hollywood system for a little bit. It didn't agree with him. So he went back to being an independent filmmaker. It's just that he was then able to deal with studios and say, well, look, you give me the money, I make the film, you release it. <laughs> and these days, it's it's just such a different uh, business that for somebody to do that, it'd be very rare. It would have to be somebody who has their own money and they're able to make whatever they want and that their films make money independently for the studios to turn around and go, right, we'll get this guy on board. And for that person to then have the gumption to go, I'm doing it my way. I'm going to take as long as I want. Research relentlessly. Well, this is the thing. As he went along, the gaps between the films coming out became bigger and bigger to the point where it was a whole over a decade between films. Absolutely. I mean, 12 years between Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. But yeah. in that time, he was developing, you know, it was free stories. Yeah. Two of which, well, one that didn't get made, the Aryan Papers, because that was um, so similar to Schindler's List that he decided not to do it. Yeah. And then there was AI, which um, Spielberg, Spielberg took over, would, yeah, later. But Spielberg was going to direct it anyway. Oh, was he? Oh, I always thought he Kubrick was, was yes. going to make it, but went to Spielberg for advice about working with children no, and all no, that no, shit. No, 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 no. There was, there was a point where... Um, I think that they wanted to do both productions simultaneously. So you'd have um, Spielberg off directing AI and then Kubrick making Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, I, I see. just think, I don't think the, 
why it sort of stayed in sort of pre-production for such a long time is because uh, Kubrick felt that the technology hadn't quite caught up. Well, that's what he was asking his advice on, wasn't it? Whether you created dinosaurs, could you create a child? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I, and then, of course, there was the whole, um, you know, Napoleon uh, epic that he worked on for for decades, which obviously never did get made in the end. No, because of a little film called Waterloo bombing at the at the box office, and people was like, and he just it just blew the winds out uh, the wind out of his cells. But then, but he used that research into Barry Lyndon. So he didn't waste any of his time. That was for sure. <laughs> mm. That's true. Mm. No, it's interesting. It's very interesting to look back on him. So that leads us on to our picks for uh, movie heaven. So I decided to go first this time. Hey, <laughs> yeah. hey! So, you, you, uh, you always ask me to. It's not. It's not that I jump in there. You always ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt that I was confident enough to go first this time. Go for it. I would. I, I want you to go first. That sounds great. Okay. Right. Well, my pick is uh, Full Metal Jacket. Now, I could have picked more or less any of his films really to be movie heaven because each one of them stands up on their own. But I just remember the reaction I got when I watched this film. Mm -hmm. And also I think people feel I don't like Vietnam war films, assuming that <laughs> two of my previous picks for movie hell have been Vietnam war films. I, I do like Vietnam war films. It's just that, you know, unfortunately, those two Vietnam War films I didn't like, <laughs> but I do like this film. Yeah. Now, I when I first watched this, I was at university and I wasn't studying film. I was actually studying computers, which I dropped out of because I just got really bored of it. I mean, there's nothing worse than theory on computers. Nothing. <laughs> but they had a library there and they had a big video collection and I saw Full Metal Jacket and I remember the trailer and I went, I'm going to watch this. And I sat down and I, I watched it in the library on, with a small screen and headphones and I was absolutely um, blown away. I was, I came, I, I, when I finished, I put the headphones down and I just, I just had to sit there. And I had not seen a film that had hit me so hard in the gut before than this film oh yes no, absolutely it's uh, i remember i remember a very similar reaction yes uh, when i first watched it and um you know first of all i didn't know i was getting sort of two films for one <laughs> but the other thing was i was just like my god oh yeah you know the whole thing the whole horror of it pre and and post so yeah this is the thing people feel that the um, I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and they feel that the first half is like the best bit and then the second half is kind of a bit of a letdown because it's it's not like the first bit it's not as intense as the first bit but that's intentional now mm. if you don't know the story of Full Metal Jacket it's about uh, these recruits who are trained to be Marines and then are sent off to Vietnam so the first half you are following them their training and they have like the uh, amazing performance by R. Lee Emery as the gunnery sergeant. 
And it's just, ah, oh, it's just full on. It's just nonstop. It's, he, he's breaking these guys down so that they can be efficient killers, that they lose all their humanity. So at the end of the day, when they are face, face to face with the enemy, they can pull a trigger. He's since gone on to make a, a career basically off the back of this as well, hasn't he? <laughs> but the so. dialogue is all his dialogue, all his put downs, a lot of it is improvised. There's a lot of stuff that he just came up with or that he'd heard of, you know, through the fact that he was a real gunnery sergeant, that he had trained the troops and he had, you know, he was the real deal. And we follow Private Joker, Private Cowboy, and Private Pile. And it's mostly focused on Private Pile. And he is, you know, he's the fat body. He's the guy who's really not pulling his weight. And he's the guy who was picked on mercilessly. And, of course, he snaps. I mean, absolutely snaps. And it's and that's what why it makes that first half really powerful because you're just seeing this guy you know being pummeled not only by the gunnery sergeant but by the other troops you know he's he's an outsider he's not wanted by anybody he is that poor kid that gets picked on by bullies and in the end he cracks and he you know he does something that he can't get away from and then the second half we see private joker over in Vietnam and becomes another film. A totally different feel. Now these guys are out. They're free. They don't have the restraints they had back at the training camp. And they can, you know, they are having a good time. I mean, you know, they're having sex. There's girls, you know, there's drugs. Though even though this film doesn't really go into the drugs side of things, does it? Not particularly, no. Not particularly. It's more about the prostitution. I mean, that famous line, you know, love you long time, <laughs> comes from from that, you know, segment. And that's the other thing about this film as a Kubrick film is it's so quotable. It's very quoted. I mean, let, let's be honest, the first half of the film, any other film, whether it be sci-fi, war, whatever, that's, that, that's had any scene that deals with... Um, you know, military training, okay, has basically, you know, copied or, or, or homaged or however you want to put it, the the opening half of Full Metal Jacket, basically, hasn't it? You know. Um, it has. Though, saying that, though, this isn't the first film that's had to deal with that. I mean, we've had other films, but in comparison, they are very tame. Indeed, yes. But then... As we get into Vietnam, we get to see uh, more of the, the other troops. I mean, you get to meet guys like Animal Motherfucker, which is, which <laughs> great is a great name. name. <laughs> <laughs> Who is um, who's played by uh, Adam Baldwin, you know, who w later went on to play Jane in Firefly. And in this, he's, comp you know, he's... He's a psycho. I mean, the guys describe him as he's the best guy under fire. If somebody could throw grenades at him all day, he'd be the best person ever. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. <laughs> and then um, the whole sort of Vietnam segment finishes with, um, what are you doing? 
What? Can you can you hear a noise in the background? Sorry. Yeah, are you sharpening your knife. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's sorry. Right. I'll stop doing what I'm doing. I didn't think that it would pick that up. But okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I'm doing a mic tack on you. <laughs> you are. So the Vietnam segment culminates with this sniper who's taking the troops out one by one, and they're combing this uh, what used to be a factory, trying to find this sniper and it's it you know it turns out that the sniper is is a little girl and this whole idea of um child soldiers i think was i, I think it was the first time really seen on screen and actually them taking part in the action and seeing what happens to them as well and it is this whole thing up to this point where private joker has talked about killing and he's talked you know there's a there's a segment where they're being interviewed and you know they're all saying why they're there and jokers they're going well i wanted to be the first kid on my block to have a kill score you know i wanted to come to you know oriental vietnam and kill people you know he's doing it with such a jokey manner and but he's never done it and here he is faced with having to do it and he does and you can sort of see the kind of change in him because you know up to this point he has he has dodged that bullet he's never had to be face to face with somebody and kill a person let alone a child and you know it's really that bit it's like that that that's that's like another punch in the gut you know which you weren't expecting because in the first segment where you've been pummeled you're kind of expecting it by the end you're kind of getting used to it and then you get this this new segment that comes in and it's all fun. And you're thinking, oh, this is, oh, wow, this is a relief. And then at the end, you get this emotional, you know, punch in the gut. And you're just like, and it really, it really sticks with you. I Now people say, oh, it doesn't really have an ending. It just stops. And yeah. It, I, I don't know how you could have, where you could have gone after that. Yeah, you exactly. Know, if, if it had been casualties of war, that might have been a court case and, <laughs> and he would have ended up back in the states at the end of the day you see him walking off and they're singing mickey mouse because the idea is that you know the, the war continues and this is just another day in their lives until they can get out of this hellhole and many of those people many of those men you see singing mickey mouse won't get out there they'll be stuck there yeah. And I think that's the real power of it. And also the song at the end, um, uh, Painted Black by the Rolling Stones. Great song to have over the end credits. Absolutely. And now, this is the other thing Kubrick's very well known for is his soundtracks. Yes. I mean, really noticeable from 2001 onwards, where he used the Blue Danube. Danube? Yeah, Blue Danube over the spaceship docking into the space station. And ever since then, music's always played a big part like in Clockwork Orange and like Barry Lyndon, like The Shining, not so much. The Shining's music is, I mean, it gets under your skin, but it is, does feel like it's a whole sort of series of tones and it's stuff. Atmosphere. It's atmosphere, yeah. It's, no. very, it's very atmospheric, but it's not something you would want to stick on, you know, have a listen to, you know, one night. <laughs> you know, oh, I feel a bit of The Shining soundtrack. But the, the Full Metal Jacket one, yeah. I mean, some some great songs in there. I mean, um, these boots are made for walking by Nancy Cart um, Nancy Cartwright. No, 
Sinatra. Sinatra. Yeah. You know, it's a great introduction into the whole Vietnam section. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is another example of, you know, again, talking about um, Kubrick as, as, as a sort of the craft and, and the director, you know, using the different art forms, you know, in the way that a director does and combining them together. And, uh, you, you know, as well as being the master photographer, you know, he, he did have um, massive appreciation for music and artwork and you know all of those things so I, I think you're absolutely right when you say about everything he did was so meticulously crafted um and you know that went right down to things like the soundtrack and the mix mm. and you know everything <laughs> which uh <laughs> which he was lucky enough because he had his his, his his final cut on stuff didn't he, Re- he did. which was I rare mean... <laughs> well I, I don't know if you heard the story about The Shining where the story goes that he asked Julian Senior what he thought of the film and he said he didn't like the ending and Kubrick agreed with him. So he actually sent people out to cinemas that were actually showing the film and got them to cut the ending off. The ending we're talking about is where um, oh, uh, Shelley Duvall and the boy are sort of being interviewed Oh, yes. I've never seen this ending, but they're being interviewed and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just saying they're kind of like clearing things up. Oh, yes, we found the body, blah, 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 blah you know, all this stuff. And, and of course, it is. A, it's a very bad ending. And people feel as well that if Kubrick had, had been alive when Eyes Wide Shut had been released, that he may have recut it, you know, just before its release or why it's during. But, but who knows? We, we'll never know. Yeah. When I was at doing film training because i didn't go to film school i did film training uh full metal jacket was one of those films a lot of us talked about and the fact that you know that he made england look like vietnam and the states as well i mean it was all shot in england i mean the the whole battle sequence at the end amongst the factories was at an, an old um, gas works in east london and i remember seeing the photograph of the set a massive wide shot and the the thing was if you so you watch the film and you can see the location and how they used it if they had just turned the camera a little bit to the right you would have seen the gas works yeah is this because he didn't want to travel to the philippines or anything like that was that was that the reason behind that Do you know yes um he he very much wanted to stay in England uh, and everybody come to him because it's like with Eyes Wide Shut, he created a New York set on the back, back lot of Pinewood. But then so did Batman. Yes. <laughs> Batman was filmed in Pinewood Studios and they that was a back lot. But yeah, he famously is known for not flying, even though he's got a, a pilot's license. He just wanted <laughs> I I think it was that he just wanted to be close to home. Yes. Because you have all all these studios there and you had all the workmen, all the craftsmen, all, and the actors could come to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also why the research got more and more and more and more. Because instead of like going on location to New York, you know, he had to build that stuff from scratch. And, you know, everything had to be correct. Everything yeah. down from the paving slabs, the bins, the signs, the the fronts of buildings, the architecture. I mean, that takes a long time to, 
to build all that up and be authentic. No, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, um, I know a lot of people that used to think he was he was actually English, even though he's not. He's American. But, you know, because just because he spent so much of his life over here. Indeed. A good movie, though. I, I have to admit, um, Full Metal Jacket was probably one of the first ones of his that I sort of remember. And, and again, in a similar way to you, because of the emotional reaction that it that it gave me if you like um it you know it definitely stuck with me um and you know i remember even the poster work that that classic image with uh, born to kill you know written on the uh, on 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 the um helmet and things of that nature it was it was just such a again that was a real video shop image wasn't it that oh that, yeah that yeah. poster was everywhere <laughs> well i mean also remember it's not just born to kill but it's a peace symbol as well it is yeah yeah i remember i used to play um uh when i was a like a teenager i used to be in a paintball team and um (laughs) uh, a lot of the uh this was a you know around that time or shortly after and a lot of the um the paintball players you know because everybody used to sort of dress up in 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 uh you know, army army surplus gear and whatever to go out and get covered in in different coloured paint. And uh, one of them actually had a uh, uh, a helmet that he'd wear, and it had uh, "Born to Splat" written on it, which I thought was quite amusing <laughs> at the time as a movie fan and uh, you know, obviously a paintballer. So yes, <laughs> yes, certainly. But a good pick and, for uh, a good pick for movie heaven. I feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, let's not forget that. You know, the, a lot of the actors in it give some really fine performances. I mean, Matthew Modine as Private Joker, he's really good. He is. And also because he holds his own with Arlie Emery and Vincent D'Onofrio. I was going to say, Vincent D'Onofrio, um, you, you know, that that was that was a hell of a performance, wasn't it? It yeah. really was. And, yeah. you know, I didn't see obviously the, the 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 pivot point of the film where it changes. I I didn't see that coming. I remember that being a real shock moment for me. <laughs> mm. I was like, bloody hell! <laughs> so, yes, but yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it must have been. I'm guessing for Adam Baldwin, that must have been one of his first films. Um, I believe he was in a film called uh, My Own Bodyguard or something like that. Oh right, okay. I remember. I've I've seen I've seen him in something something else where he looked really young right okay uh he was it's called my bodyguard right and uh according to imdb he was in like 10 of he has got 10 other credits before wow. Full metal jacket okay he started young there you go yeah that's <laughs> the key start young have a long career there you go that's it, yeah. any wannabe actors out there do it Yes. <laughs> well, this is the thing because uh, with Full Metal Jacket, um, for the, the the soldiers, they didn't want names, so Kubrick actually did like an open casting, both here in England and over in the states, and actors were allowed to send him video auditions from wherever they were. Lots of people did, oh. and that's why you had a lot of these young actors. I think Matthew Modine had been around for a bit up to that point. I remember him being in Birdie. Yes. 
Absolutely. Which was another Vietnam film. Yeah. So, you know, he was he was still up and coming. So I, I don't know if he was cast by Kubrick or if he did the same thing where he sent him an audition tape and he thought he was right for that role. I mean, it's as I say, it's hard to say. But, um, you know, I mean, for what Vincent D'Ofro had to do for that part, because he had to put on all that weight. Mm. You know, and... I don't know, it must have been... I don't know how I would have taken having, you know, the gunnery sergeant shout at me all the time. Oof. Yes. But, um, yes, it's it's a great film. Very and, uh, memorable my... and very quotable, like you said. Definitely, yeah. And my pick for movie heaven. So, Fabulous. Uh, let's move on to yours, Keith. Okay. What's your pick? Well, I mean, you know, I'm going to do, uh, I think, what... Clive lovingly called in the last podcast a Keith caveat, which uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I had, I had a lot of, um, I found this quite stressful to choose actually, because, you know, what do you, what do you choose as heaven and what do you choose as hell when you look at Kubrick's body of work? Um, I remember, you know, in fact, Clive during uh, Fright Fest, we had a, uh, a conversation about this and it was quite interesting because Clive made an argument why, every film of Kubrick's could be picked as both movie heaven and movie hell, which I thought, wow, that would be an interesting uh, podcast, but would go on for a long time. Um, I, would. I, also, I also talked a lot to my, uh, my mate Rod, because we used to have long, long conversations. He's the guy who did the music on overpass and he's my oh, okay. Costa Rican friend who was one of my um, uh, roommates, as they call it in, in college uh, over there. And me, uh, him and a couple of other friends, uh, we used to have long, long arguments about all of this because Rod Rod was really into Kubrick. He was really into Tarkovsky and all those sort of directors. And we used to talk about, you know, entertainment versus art and, you know, cerebral value and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I asked him what he'd pick and he had no idea. He couldn't, he couldn't. He couldn't even think of that. So what I've done is I've gone a bit left field and I picked one of his earlier films, uh, one that people may not be so aware of. Uh, from 1956, his film The Killing, which was uh, kind of a film noir heist film. Um, you, you know, it, it's got lots of very Kubrick elements in it, but uh, is, is sort of quite different as well. Um, this was this film was made. He'd done a film which I also watched recently that I hadn't seen before um, that I really enjoyed called Killer's Kiss, which was a film that he basically did everything on. So he sort of wrote, produced, directed, filmed it, edited it. Um, you know, gave the actors lifts to and from set. You know, <laughs> everything. And it was a small film. But it did it did quite well for him and it got him noticed by a producer called James B. Harris, who decided to partner up with Kubrick um, to start making features. And they didn't actually have anything sort of ready at the time. So they found this novel called Clean Break, which was written by Lionel White. Um, and it's basically, it, as I said, it's about a, a planned heist um, of a racetrack. A horse horse racetrack and it's uh you know this was shot in black and white um it's uh it, it, it's very interesting um and i think you, you know it, it, it was one of those films that started to 
possibly define uh, the, the way Kubrick would work later on. Um, I, I tried to do a little bit of research on this. I got there is a very good Blu-ray by Arrow Video um, uh, of, of the killing, which actually includes Killer's Kiss. That's how I was able to see that as well. And there was a little bit of, uh, there were one or two featurettes um, with a little bit of information about the, the production of this film. And one of the things that struck me was um, one of the stories from it, and you never know, you know, these are sort of retrospective stories, you never know um, what sort of truths in this or not, but the cinematographer on this film was uh, a guy called Lucian Ballard, who was quite a established, well-known um, DOP of the time. And uh, there was a situation very early in the film where uh, asked for a certain lens and a certain type of shot. And uh, Lucian Ballard tried to create that shot in a different way. So in other words, he, he would use a different lens, but, uh, um, you, you know, put the camera closer to the action to try and sort of give Kubrick what he, what he was wanting. But apparently... Uh, well, as, as you well know, Simon, you're a, you're a, you're a filmmaker. You, you, know, you know, sometimes it changes the perspective depending on what lens you've got, even if you've got a similar shot. Yeah, you can't just sort of zoom in and create the same thing. And, um, you, you know, Kubrick being the, the uh, student of photography that he was, um, knew that this wasn't going to give him what he wanted. So basically said, no, 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 I want this. And... Apparently, so the story has it, Lucian Ballard tried to sort of fob him off with some technical jargon and whatever. And Kubrick got quite insulted, not only that he wasn't doing what he was told, but he was trying to make the assumption that Kubrick wouldn't know the difference and apparently told him, put the lens on, I said, and put the camera where I fucking want it. And apparently from there onwards, they didn't have one argument. But I, I just think that's quite an interesting story because, you know, you know what we know of, of uh, Kubrick's later, later work, um, you know, shows that he very much, you know, had that attention to detail and attention to photography and very much controlling exactly what he was making. And also the fact that this was his third film, He's yes. still considered to be new at this. Yeah, I think he was about twenty-six. Yeah, so he's pretty young. It doesn't. It doesn't matter about age because there's always this um, perspective. Perce uh, sorry, what's the word? Perception. That's it. That if you're, you know, you've you've made one or two films, you you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you you don't have experience, which is crazy because you've done two films. He did two films. On his own, he was the director, he was the producer, he's the cameraman, you know, as you said, on Killer's Kiss, he was also the, the driver. He'd go and pick up the actors and drop them off. And um, and you get this DOP, who's an award-winning DOP, who assumes that Kubrick doesn't know what he's talking about and tries to fob him off with some, you know, you know, it was, at the end of the day, it, it was all about a power play. And you have this on set all the time. Yeah. You have you know, you come on board, you bring the people on, and you're and the one thing you don't want is somebody who's trying to put their own stamp onto the film. You want somebody who's going to contribute and you know, hopefully working together make the film better. 
You don't want somebody who wants to come in and bulldoze over everything you've prepared, you know, and, and and try and make it their own. And this is the thing, why that story is always sort of been told is the fact that he stood up to the guy and he told him that if he wasn't happy with it, he could fuck off. Yeah. Now, no, he didn't absolutely. say it in those words. He, he, you know, he more or less told him that he didn't put the camera away. He told him with the lens that he wanted, he'd be fired. Yeah. And for that DOP, that would have been, you know, that's, word would have got around about that. And it wouldn't be like his name would be mud from then on. But it also, it'd be a black mark against him. Yeah, no, definitely. And in this industry, it's so small that something like that would get around. Yeah. No, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, obviously this this particular project, um, uh, you, you know, Kubrick was as he was with, with, with many projects moving forward, um, very involved in, in, you know, adapting this screenplay, adapting this novel. And, you know, this for, for Kubrick was actually a fairly short film. I mean, this is like a 90 minute film. So but it but it does it moves along at quite a pace. Um, you know, there's 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 some nice performances in this. Um, and, you know, it's it's really uh, in terms in terms of the heist, you know, it, it's it's one of these things where you really are on on the edge of your seat because you do kind of buy into these characters quite well. And, um, you know, you're 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 somewhat rooting for them and it and, and they're very smart. The characters in this, you know, the main guy, which is a, uh, a guy called Johnny Clay, who's played by uh, Sterling Hayden, um, who, who's who's the mastermind behind this heist. Um, you know, he plans things very meticulously. And, and there is a there is a sting in the tail to this film, um, which is of no fault of his whatsoever it's just purely a chance thing um, but uh but yeah it, it, it's very entertaining it's a good little heist movie um it's perhaps not an absolute typical kubrick film um but you can you can certainly see you can see the progression um of him as a filmmaker uh from his previous two films and, and i did actually watch you know the two films prior to this sort of back to back before watching this one and and this was the th this one did work very well so that's um that's why i decided to uh, to choose it as as my movie heaven uh, as i said a tough choice because there's a uh, obviously a, a a load of good films that follow <laughs> yeah well let me just pick up on a point you just said there about the whole sort of control and chance thing because it's not just the ending where chance plays a part now the thing about this story is that uh, there's a voiceover and the vo the voiceover is kind of like it it's sort of setting up the characters and saying what time thing happens and kubrick plays around with time a lot but the famous thing about this film is the heist scene where you see it from three different points of view which tarantino copied for jackie brown very much so in fact you can see a lot of influence yeah i mean tarantino i, I think i think this is probably one of those films that he cites as as an inspirational film to things like you know reservoir dogs and absolutely jackie brown and things of that nature but 
the, the thing is the voiceover comes out comes in when it's talking about the control side of things when chance comes into it there's no voiceover so the chance in this is that um that one of the uh the guys involved well okay first thing is is the scheming girlfriend of uh one of the characters and those scenes with her um it's her name's Faye. yeah played oh, no, by not. colleen it's, it's gray she, yeah no 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 Faye is the girlfriend of johnny clay and she's literally there at the beginning and she's there at the end and you never see her again i'm talking about uh the actress marie windsor who played sherry oh yes yes and who, the character one and her yes. yeah and her cuckold husband marvin who's the cashier who's involved in this plot and the the, the scenes between them just absolutely just they they they, they snap they're, they're they're so great i mean the dialogue is just it's brilliant because everybody else's dialogue's a bit on the nose but theirs is really snappy and really it is She's got some wonderful put downs. Oh, god! Gotcha. <laughs> some wonderful put downs to him when he asks about where's dinner, and she goes, "Well, I don't know because can't you smell it?" And he's like, "No, I can't." She goes, "Well, that, there's a reason for that. It's still in the uh, store. I haven't gone and bought it yeah. yet, or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm getting my name, names mixed up. It's the the husband's not Marvin; it's George. Yeah, it's, it's sorry, it's George. But anyway. So she's she gets that he lets drop that he's going to come into a lot of money, and she's got like a bit on the side, this sort of young gangster, and she tells him about what's happening. So that's the first bit of chance that word gets out about this job. Then the second, uh, and then you just sort of see these instances, like when the police officer is going to go to the um, the race course. And this woman runs out and tells him that there's, you know, these two people are going at each other and that they, they could murder each other. And he just drives off. Now, he yeah. could have stopped and, you know, dealt with that, but he didn't. I mean, also you have, um, oh, the character played by Timothy Carey, the uh, the sniper. Yes. Who gets caught. He's well, a, he gets he's shot, a, but he gets caught. And a great character. Yeah, but he gets caught because um, the parking attendant comes over and gives him a lucky uh a lucky horseshoe yeah. yeah yeah and the thing is he doesn't want it and the guy just drops it and so when he's trying to make his getaway he drives over it and has a burst tire yes. and it just shows you that luck and chance is sort of the polar opposite to the control that sterling hayden's character is trying to invoke on this whole situation absolutely I mean, the fact that he the fact that he gets after the, the robbery he gets to the pickup point 15 minutes late and misses the shootout. No, absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's very well crafted. And if it wasn't for that woman meeting her husband with the little dog, he would have got away with it. So this is, it's a really great meditation on how control and chance are like polar opposites to each other. And when planning something, there's chances always there against you. Yeah, it's quite existential in its whole, um, whole uh, mm. you, you know, way of things. But but I have to say, I was I, for me when I watched it, even recently, um, I was 
I was on the edge of my seat, actually, at the end. I thought, wow, you know, because you're there, you, you're totally with him and you're totally, you know, they're at the airport and, you know, he's, he's obviously trying to trying to check the case in as, 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 you know, cabin luggage. And they're like, no, no, this has to go in the hold. And they got that wonderful exchange where the supervisor gets involved and says, no, no, company policy is, you know, it has to be this mm. size and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, okay, fine check it in you know and you, you know then you just see him looking through the fence as it's blown up and and you know and it's all down to that little dog <laughs> and, and yeah yeah it's just that's just so well done it's it's such a great image to end on you know it's like yeah. wow <laughs> so um, uh, it works also really the good well. thing as well it, it 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 ends very quickly it it doesn't meander and it doesn't sort of you know it, there, there's nothing to say and he was taking, you know, because you can imagine Mr. Voiceover Man was saying, and Johnny Clay was picked up and sentenced to 10 years in prison, mm. you know, and there's none of that because I was saying, because the voiceover is used in a way to show the controlling, the control side of things, the planning. But when it comes to everything else, it's not there. No, did you notice the um, Joe Turkle in the film? Now, Joe Turkle is an actor who has appeared in two other films. Um, Paths of Glory. Right. And The Shining. Oh, okay. Or you probably know him better as being Tyrell from Blade Runner. Oh, yes. Yeah. He plays that character called Tiny in this, right? That's it. Yeah. 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 But I mean, the thing is, though, he's on screen for like a second. Yeah, no, exactly. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't hit me at the time. But now you say it, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, um, I, I particularly did like actually the stuff with uh, Timothy Kerry and the car park attendant. I thought that mm. um, that worked quite well, <laughs> even though you know <laughs> it's horribly racist at one point, but. Um, but you know that was a sign of the times, and uh, and hey, he got his comeuppance. <laughs> he did, but I mean that was only because the guy kept coming back, and he wanted to get on and do his job. He exactly. wanted to shoot the horse. So. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it's the way it's cut and everything. It's it's a really great film. It, I think you know, so. And for a for a third film, it's 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 really good. And you can now the thing is, if you've ever watched these films in order like I have, you can see, you know, the progression. And especially the use of shots and how you know how you would use similar shots in other films, but for different purposes and stuff. And it's it's, it's really good. I, I I highly recommend it if you have the time, because you really do need the time. <laughs> Even though it's thirteen films, it's it's a lot of hours in there. Oh, it is. Yeah, because I mean, this was this was probably the last uh, sort of normal length feature film before they started going into sort of epic territory <laughs> which is where they well, sort of no, stayed Paths of Glory Paths of Glory was not that long was it not okay no it's not no oh, right you're thinking because uh, after Paths of Glory it was Spartacus, Spartacus and that yeah. was a three hour yeah. film yeah that's when that's when the running time started to become long yeah so. yeah but no I'm you, you know this for me I mean I, I quite enjoy heist movies anyway and um you, you know, this this had that sort of it had that film noir type element to it as well, and it it, it was very, 
you, you know, again, like you said, it's it's well written and well paced and and nicely executed. And and it was one of these films that did have, you know, the, the end was kind of because there was a bit of a sting in the tail. It was it was kind of a a payoff to the overall thing. And um, yeah, I just I just sort of thought this was this was quite enjoyable and would be uh, perhaps a different and an interesting pick for us to chat about for movie heaven. Hmm. Oh, it's definitely a, a great pick for uh, Movie Heaven. But now we have to go to Movie Hell. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, yes, um, I have to say, for me, I thought my this choice was very easy uh, because I picked his very first film, um, Fear and Desire. Yes. Now, Fear and Desire has been one of those films that I've been wanting to see for years you know it, Kubrick himself took it off the market he wasn't happy with it but as a cinema guy I, I'd like to see it <laughs> you know absolutely I'd like to have the option to see this because it's, it's you know because he did the same thing with Clockwork Orange he he asked Warner Brothers to remove it because of the threat against his life in this country about all the bad press it was getting and stuff and so but fear and desire, far different reason for why he wanted it. <laughs> I was going to say, I was about and, to say that. I think his reason for yeah. removing this one was quite different. <laughs> exactly. You're just taking the words right out of my mouth yes. because it's a not very good film. Uh, and But thankfully, it's only an hour long. Yeah, it's a long hour, though, as I found. Yeah, it is a long hour. Now, if you don't know what fear and desire is about it's about a, a tr- about four soldiers who are trapped behind enemy lines in a fictitious war it's not based on world war Two, even though the uniforms everybody's wearing are world war Two uniforms but it's a fictitious war and these four guys are trapped behind enemy lines and they're trying to make their way back home and unfortunately because of I, I don't know if it's a lack of money or it just wasn't a very interesting story. I mean, I think he was trying to be very avant-garde with it. and Absolutely. I, there was a nice touch that he he had the soldiers also play the enemy soldiers that they killed. And so, I mean, some of the shots in it are really nice, but then it, it's just the characters in it weren't that interesting. And also the fact that now I, I'm <laughs> I don't often complain about when people cross the line, but <laughs> in this film it didn't quite work. It was it was very noticeable that, you know, from one shot to another that people were on the different sides of the screen and stuff, and it 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 wasn't a very good effect. I mean if you don't know what crossing the line means, there's what's called the 180 degree rule. And that means that if one person is on the right hand of the screen, then they remain on the right hand side of the screen for that scene unless they move. And it's same with the other person. So, okay, if you've got two people and they're talking to each other, you have person A on the right, person B on the left. And throughout the scene, when you cut from reverse wide shot, if they're still in the same positions, then they should be on the same positions on the screen. What was happening is somebody would be talking, and in in a wide shot, they'd be on the other side of the screen. 
scene. And, you know, I gathered that Kubrick, you know, was kind of embarrassed by this, that it was just, he didn't want that film out there considering the other work he'd done. I mean, his short films that he did before this were far superior. I mean, Day of the Fight is such a great film. And it's kind of what Killer's Kiss was kind of based on. Oh, it's the one about boxing, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the short. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, you, you know, there's that whole, and, you know, my, my students used to get pissed off with me whipping on about this shit for ages. But, you know, at, at the whole thing with, with crossing the line is just so that the audience doesn't get confused and know, knows which way the character's looking and it, you know, it cuts together. And, and, you know, it's okay sometimes to break those rules, but when they're, when they're not broken for a reason, they're just simply a mistake and it just looks odd and confusing. And absolutely that's, that's exactly what was going on in, in, in bits of, um, in bits of, uh, sadly. Um, but, but I mean, that wasn't its biggest problem. <laughs> that was no, one the, of the, the, the big, that was one of the problems, but, I think its biggest problem is is that it, for what it's trying to do, it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, so the the idea is that um, they come across a a girl who's a, a civilian who lives on that side of uh, the war field, and you know they capture her and one of the guys goes nuts and then kills her, even though he kind of. Not attempted rape, but there's, you know, he's. Uh... I know. I, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, for for me, I I, I hadn't seen this film. Uh, this was one of his ones that I hadn't seen, and fortunately, you had. Uh, they did release it on Blu-ray, and you had the Masters of Cinema uh, Blu-ray edition, which you kindly loaned me, so I could so I could see it. You know prior to us talking about it today uh i have yeah. to say that this i mean this says a lot like you said it's 61 minutes long or whatever it is it's a short it's re really not a feature and it's not a short it's something that's sort of in between the two and um it took me three attempts to watch it because i kept falling asleep during it which that's never a good sign is it it's like no. um it was it was frankly it was quite dull um and you know, it was surprising that this was a Kubrick film based on where he went after this and what he accomplished after this. But um, yeah, it, it, I can see why you picked it as, as movie hell. And I'll be honest, I didn't. I was trying to find the good in it. You know how it is, particularly if it's a director you kind of respect. You think, oh, you know, let's have a look. This will be quite interesting. When I when, And when it started off and it sort of explained about this being a fictitious war that doesn't exist in our world and all this, I thought, oh, is this going to be like a, a Twilight Zone episode or something? You know, I was, I was kind of um, sort of intrigued by it initially, but, you know, it only took about 20 minutes or so for me to be absolutely bored out of my head with, <laughs> with this story. And, um, you know, again, like you finding it quite jarring that there were quite a lot of technical mistakes in this film as well from a director that's normally so stylistic and uh, and, and and meticulous about everything so it, you know it's interesting to see his early work and how, how he progressed i guess but the, the story of this just wasn't that interesting D did he write it i'm not even sure whether he wrote it or yeah not. He, he did, did yeah. yeah okay yeah so. yeah i mean 
I mean, at the end of the day, he was very much influenced of the with the films around at that time and the scene he was part of. And so he was trying to be Evan. Yeah, it was a bit up its ass, basically, uh, wasn't it? Very much up yeah. its own ass. Yeah. And the, the problem was just not much happened. But you can see how that influences Killer's Kiss, where with Killer's Kiss, there's a lot of action in it. Where in Fear and Desire, there's not much action in no, it. No, I mean, I thought Killer's Kiss was great. You know, again, mm. I hadn't seen that. Um, the fact it was a bonus on the killing was, was a bonus. And... Uh, I just thought that worked really well. And that was an interesting story. And obviously, because it was sort of centered around the whole boxing thing as well, it was, a, it was something that, that, you know, Kubrick had some knowledge of from the documentaries that he'd done and, you know, things of that nature. But it was kind of a, a nice little love triangle story as well. And uh, I thought that worked much better. I thought, now this is much more like it. But um, <laughs> But I could so see why you picked it. Uh, fear and desire as as uh, movie hell. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a documentary on the Blu-ray where the guy sort of says, you know, watching this film, you can kind of see the blueprint for the films that were yet to come. The film, you know, those things that would, you know, he was interested in. And you were going, yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, the whole thing with the characters playing themselves and the enemy, you can start to say, yes, the duality of man, but it just didn't oh, work. That's a stretch. It just did not work. Yeah. But, you know, it, I mean, it was, an, it was an interesting idea, the whole idea that these guys were killing themselves. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, but it's it just didn't seem to be in the uh, the right place. I mean, the thing about low budget filmmaking is it is it certainly is an art. When you can, it has to be about ideas because you don't have the money for effects or spectacle in its place. You have to, to, to it has to be you know an ideas kind of film. Mm-hmm. So if you take a film like, uh, God, I'm trying to think of something. Oh, okay, like Living in Oblivion. Mm-hmm. Because Living in Oblivion is a low-budget film about low-budget filmmaking. <laughs> so... <laughs> and it works beautifully. The, it works very beautifully because it's about the characters and it's about the idea. And the idea is, you know, the kind of realities of making a low-budget film. And, I mean, the the final scene of that film is what we call a wild track. We have to stand there for 60 seconds while the sound recorders records room time. And in that time, and in the film, in that time, you see what's going on in people's heads. So at the director, you see that he, he's going to win an award. He's going to win an award in the shape of an apple. And he's going to go on stage and he's going to have a go at everybody who said that he'd never make it in this industry. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then you have the actress who sees herself getting a job as a waitress because she just didn't make it as an actress. And the grip, dreaming about having a hamburger and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know. But it's a, it's a wonderful, simple idea that just works so well. Yeah. And But just works in the confines of that budget. Yet with this film, it, it kind of needed... It was just something that was... It should have been bigger. No, I agree. It, I might, mean, work, I, it might have worked on a bigger scale. I, I think, was it Kubrick's dad that gave him the budget to make this film? 
I, I, yeah, he got he got the money off off his family. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you know, it, it is it is like that sort of it is a bit of a sort of typical art students film, isn't it? In many respects. Um, but as as I said, it's just you, you know when when you see it, knowing what he goes on to do, it's a bit unbelievable that it's even made by him. And I can sort of see why he he wasn't keen for that to be um, sort of out there in, in the, in the general domain as it were. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can I totally understand the decision on this one. I could never understand the decision on Clockwork Orange. Yes. Well, cause Clockwork Orange, um, I originally saw that film. Well, I actually bought a copy of it from the States mm-hmm. and brought it back with me. And it was just, it was just crazy to think what well, I can, I can literally go, you know, a, across the sea to France and buy a copy and watch it. But yet I can't see it in my own country. I, it just it, it just sort of annoyed the hell mm. out of me. And but the thing was when he died, I knew Warner Brothers were immediately gonna release it. And they did. They released it the year after in two thousand. Yeah. Because it was only because of Kubrick. Because Kubrick didn't want it in in England where he lived. Because there's such the bad experience he had. And you know it is, it's such a shame that it it took his death to actually bring the film over to these shores. Mm. Crazy stuff. Yeah. No. Absolutely. But yeah. F- but on the uh, on fear and desire. Yeah. I uh, totally uh, understand that decision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I felt I I was I'm one hundred percent in agreement with you. I mean, I found it really hard work, and uh, yeah. I just. Um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't think it was very good at all, to be honest. And uh, yeah, and 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 definitely, you could see the progression with the next two films. Yes. Oh hell yeah. Oh but, hell okay, yeah. Okay, let's. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's leave the hell that was fear and desire, desire, and move on to uh, your pick. Then. Okay. Well, I've picked. Um, I, again, I'll caveat. I, I haven't picked this because I think it's a bad film. I've picked this because of the uh, story sort of behind the film and the fact that this changed things for Kubrick's career and also sort of isn't, isn't in some respects, isn't a Kubrick film in, in, in some aspects. And that is uh, the 1960 epic historical drama film Spartacus, okay, which um, was... Uh, well, his second collaboration with Kirk Douglas after uh, Paths of Glory. You know the story about how he came on board this film. Yes, I do. I was I was about to yeah. go on to that. I mean, the, the, one of the things. But did you? Sorry, sorry I'm sorry. I just I have to say this because I only found this out recently, and I was okay. like kind of blown away. This, but you know what film he was up to doing before doing this film? One Eyed Jacks with uh, Marlon Brando. Oh right, okay. He was, no, I didn't he was know gonna that, up. Actually. He was up for directing that, and uh, don't know what happened between him and Brando. But finally, Brando took over, and he directed that himself. Oh and right, interesting. Kubrick went on to direct this one. Oh okay. Well, th- no, thanks for that. I mean, my my, my the trivia I was going to bring to it was more about the the the, the Spartacus itself. But um, that's interesting. I didn't know that about mm. uh, about Kubrick. Um, so it's funny because at the time he was seeking to be, you know, a director for hire. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, with, with Spartacus, uh, basically 
this whole project came about. I mean, it was produced by Kirk Douglas as well as starring him. And this came about because Kirk Douglas originally wanted to be in Ben-Hur, but William Wyler uh, chose um, Charlton Heston instead. So it was, you know, I don't know whether this is a good reason to make a film, but, you know, it was kind of, well, I wanted to do my, you know, Roman epic and, you know, I wasn't able to do the one, you know, that one. So Kirk Douglas, you know, got this film put into hey, commissioned. Sorry. He's not the first. And tell the truth, we've we've had some great films come out of that. I mean, the fact that Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon and oh, yeah. couldn't get the rights. So they he made Star, Star Wars. Wars. Hey, go. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not. And, and I'm not actually saying I want to say as well, I'm not actually saying that Spartacus is a bad film by any means. Um, you know, I remember this. I mean, I think you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast that it used to be sort of shown at Christmas time. And, you, you, you know, it was one of those growing up. It was one of those big, epic, you know, star studded spectacular um films that, that that you know you'd get on television and um you, you you know you you knew about um i think the reason uh which is very atypical of me the reason this actually came to my attention first off was um it was it was remastered and re-released uh in the early 90s on vhs and the, the person who sort of pioneered that or was very much behind that was Spielberg um, because obviously, you know, he was a big fan of the film and a big fan of Kubrick, as we know. Um, and the other reason that it came to my attention was, of course, by, by the point of the restoration, sadly, Laurence Olivier was no longer with us. So Anthony Hopkins was actually doing the, the, the voice doubling for... Um, for yeah. uh, Olivier so it was all, all sort of little things like that outside you know other films that I was I just want to in. talk about that scene Sorry. very briefly yeah I mean it, it it's lovely it's there but it just has no point in the film at all we're we talking about and oysters anything, and snails we are indeed yeah. <laughs> from a point to just sort of showing that um Krakus the character played by Lawrence Olivier could be a bisexual Mm -hmm. but it has no effect on the story at all. And then it has this other weird thing where when it comes on, you know that it's not him <laughs> doing the voiceover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, it's Anthony Hopkins and it, I, I, I don't even know if he's even trying to do an impression of Lawrence Olivier. It's just, you know, it's him. You just yeah. it, it, now it's a jarring a, scene. I have to say it's a it's very a jarring, jarring scene. scene. It doesn't. It really doesn't need to be there. But I guess for completists, they want to see that. Oh, definitely. But then, yeah, yeah. No. I have to say that's not the worst overdubbing in in the whole film. I mean, the fact that they use the same voice for um, in at the beginning when they're at the gladiator gladiator school, and then at the end when Spartacus fights um, with Tony Curtis's character. Yeah, uh, and Antonius. Oh, uh, Antoninus. Antoninus, yeah, okay. Antoninus. Yeah. Um, you know, you can hear the, that same voice again. You know, he's got very sort of deep, I'm a, a narrator's kind of voice. Yeah. And he's not actually a character in it. It's just a voice you keep hearing sometimes from the background shouting. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Um, 
you, you know, as, as I said, this this is not a, a bad movie, but I do feel it was a sort no. of um, change in in Kubrick's career. And, and just because ori- originally um, David Lean was going to be involved in making this film and 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 pulled out for whatever reason. And then um, Douglas hired Anthony Mann, who uh, obviously was a veteran director of, you know, many sort of westerns you know winchester 73 things of that nature and very very well established and uh, apparently they 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 shot like the salt mine scene and um within the first week uh um kirk douglas and and anthony mann had actually fallen out and disagreed on quite a number of things so as producer um uh douglas you know, fired Anthony Mann and uh, then approached Kubrick to actually come on board and, and, and direct this project. Which is amazing because in the day, he had no preparation. He didn't have pre-production. He literally stepped into the shoes of another director in a production that was already shooting. Yes. Which, and, and here, was the pro- here was the beginning of the problems, I, I think, in so much that, um, you, you know, as we all know, Kubrick's quite meticulous and a quite a control freak but also you know as any good director does wants to be involved in the actual script and the script development and um wasn't given wasn't allowed the the sort of creative control that he wanted from that aspect um you you know yes and no i i i i have to say he insisted that there be a battle scene near the end. Oh, I think he added all the epic battles, which was his influence and was something he brought to it. Yes, because those weren't scripts. Yeah, no, they weren't. In fact, um, apparently there was it was very barren of, of battles and it was all, you know, to, to get these sort of big name actors on board. Um, uh, you, you know, we're talking obviously Lawrence Olivier, but Charles Lawton. Peter Ustinov, Tony Curtis, John Gavin, you know, all these names that, that they were, um, apparently the scripts were, there were different versions with uh, other characters, their characters highlighted more <laughs> in those versions <laughs> that went out to turn it into this sort of big actory uh, actor fest. And I think that, that was one of the things that Kubrick, one of the things that is Kubrick and about this film is the fact that he did sort of bring those epic battles to it that that weren't present um but in terms of the actual obviously he had to work with a lot of different types of actors from from different schools of acting here you know you had your, your Laurence Olivier who wore a prosthetic nose through this and when he found out that you know the Romans didn't ride on uh, didn't have saddles and whatever insisted that he didn't on his horse to the point that it was so uh, it was so destructive to the actual filming that um, I, that this story, I don't know whether it's true that uh, Kubrick made him sit on a step ladder for all of his close ups because he couldn't <laughs> deal with him rocking around on a horse with no saddle or whatever. Um, so but but there was a lot of clashing um, with with Kirk Douglas on this. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you know, yeah, that he, that part is true. There was a lot of clashing between him and Douglas, and there was some, there was some issues uh, around the, the the screenwriter because the guy who'd done the screenplay had actually been blacklisted from the whole communist thing that had that had been going on in Hollywood, of, you know, in the years leading up to this. 
and yeah. um you know couldn't would either use a pseudonym or, or wouldn't use his name but kubrick tried to get his name put on it which um you know kirk douglas objected and actually got it that this this guy could uh, dalton trumbo could actually have a, a proper credit but obviously that caused a lot of conflict and friction between um kirk douglas and and uh and Kubrick uh, during the filming of this. So, uh, you know, I mean, w- when we talk about filmmaking and, and y- you know, I, again, I used to, you know, talk about this in some depth with classes and whatever. One of the things that is difficult about filmmaking and, and the, po- the politically correct term is, you know, obviously like uh, creative differences and all that sort of thing. But a lot of it is is to do with, with egos and different agendas yeah <laughs> and um y- you know i get from from, from the background that, that i've sort of managed to find out on on this and the various interviews and whatever it does seem to me that um y- y- you know for kirk douglas who was the producer and the star and you know obviously because of his background of not having been cast in ben-hur um you know, and things of that nature. It sounds like quite a bit of ego <laughs> got in the way of this uh, somewhat. And obviously, Kubrick being the sort of control freak um, that he likes to be, I, I, I feel that this was, from what I've managed to learn, not the smoothest of, of productions, to say the least. Um, not to mention the fact that you had a lot of actors in this uh again each with their own egos and agendas and personalities and differences of opinion and and, and things of that nature um so the one of the reasons I, I i think this is interesting and and i chose it for the for the movie hell if you like is it i think it was possibly movie hell for kubrick himself because it was after this experience that he basically said you know well, i've tried the hollywood thing here but unless i've got full creative control and directors cut and you know can work on the script and and things of that nature that he didn't want to work on these these types of films moving forward so you know for many i think they they think this was the point in kubrick's career where um you know films following this were what we classically know as the Kubrick films that you know most people are more aware of and the films up until this point are, are, are sort of lesser known to an extent and this is a, this is the sort of film that's that in many respects is not a typical Kubrick film meaning that he wasn't involved in every single aspect from the script the casting it came with a lot of baggage that he had to work with well, yeah, and also the fact that his camera work in it is very stifled. I mean, they're very um, the the camera doesn't move at all, really, in this film. Uh, it's all done for editing, but the sh- shot wise, they're all very um, static, mm, which is not so they're always wide. At all. No, no. So there's lots of wide shots and close ups, and you know, and also the fact because they're filming in studios and not on location, so. You know, because of Kubrick, a lot of his sh- stuff is shot on location. And if it's if it is a studio set, then it's one of the best looking studio sets you've ever been on. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, I've, I've watched it again today, and oh, did you? Okay, I, yes, I did. Unfortunately, I did. I and, didn't and have that's the time today. I would have loved to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah, three hours, including, um, you know, the um, interval. Right, and now that's the restored version, isn't it? It's the restored version, yeah. yes. Yeah. And you know, it's it is a film where it could have been a lot shorter. Um, I always thought the last 20 minutes or so could be shortened a bit. I know it's where we're wrapping up everybody's storyline, but once we had that final battle with, you know, when the slaves are, are conquered and we get the, the famous, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, yeah. I'm Spartacus and so's my wife. Oh, sorry, different film. Nah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> nah, which, which apparently um, uh, that line... Um, Kubrick famously was quoted as saying he thought that was silly, right? Which upset um, yeah. <laughs> Michael, Kirk uh, sorry, Douglas. Kirk Douglas, Douglas even yeah. further, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean. Well, it, yeah, it's certainly something as famous as that line is and that scene is, it doesn't feel very Kubrick at all. Um, I mean, everybody's always saying that the, the, the scenes in the gladiatorial school are very Kubrick, and they are so because it it's sort of all the whole sort of you know you're sort of seeing these guys being trained, and in some ways it's it's similar to Full Metal Jacket. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, but yeah, once you get into the politics and the biggest side of things, it is Kubrick, but not it's very sort of watered down Kubrick. It's you know it's certainly he's not been let off the reins at all to sort of do what he wants and uh, i imagine for him it must have been the the most stifling thing ever well we know it's stifling because what he went on you know after that the films he made and how he made them yeah well he was the boss he was in control of everything because he didn't want to give up that control again he didn't want to be a gun for hire exactly it was a turning point for him that sort of defined the rest of his career. And that, that's what I think was interesting about this. The other thing that's interesting is, is obviously, you know, he and Kirk Douglas had got on incredibly well uh, in Paths of Glory, hence why, you know, Kirk Douglas uh, got him on board for this. Yet, you know, after this, apparently, um, you, you know, Kirk Douglas ended up, uh, you know, apologising to Anthony Mann and actually hiring him to do the to direct the next film and, and things of that nature. So, um, you, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I'd have almost liked to have, uh, you know, had I been around in that time, I would have actually liked to have been a sort of fly on the wall on that set because you can imagine that uh, it, it was probably quite an interesting atmosphere. Yeah, well, look. <laughs> I, I know Kurt Douglas gets painted as the villain in this in this story. You gotta understand he's probably not used to a director like Kubrick. Hey, I like Kirk Douglas. I'm not I'm not knocking him at all, but it, you know, it, this is this is more sort of it's slightly hearsay because it is it is just things that I've read by other people in interviews and whatever. But my point being is that when you're up against somebody like Kubrick who wants to take his time, who wants to do multiple takes, that he wants to get it the best it could be, I think that would drive a producer nuts. Oh, big time. Yeah. You know, because they would want it. Let's shoot it. Let's move on. Let's get on to the next one. Let's not, you know, 
yeah, I, I I can see why they butted heads. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, let, let, let's face it. For all his for all his greatness, okay, Kubrick, and this is you know back to my initial point about would anyone get away with it today? It, it was a royal pain in the ass, wasn't it? I mean, it's just like the whole. Um, you know, I never forget Ridley Scott sort of talking about you know, you know when he was trying to find the uh, go through the footage for the for Blade Runner. You know, with the whether, oh, whether people the whether people yeah. even like that ending, but you know the shining ending as as it's as it's sometimes called. But it, it was ridiculous. There was something like eighty reels of uh, just you know that helicopter footage of the of the forest or something you know and 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 you just think to yourself that that just when you think of the 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 cost involved in that in that film stock and whatever that's just insane (laughs) not just that the time and the patience to go through all those reels trying to find that one shot that the the smoothest helicopter shot ever you know (laughs) blimey i mean it's but, Only for Stephen King but, not to like it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, um, y- you know, it, it's it, yeah. I'm not saying here. I picked it as movie hell. As I said, I think it's it's Kubrick's movie hell. Um, I'm not yeah. saying I think it's a bad film, but I think um, the story behind it is quite an interesting one. And if you do look at Kubrick's career, as as I said, uh, as I have done. Uh, even though I haven't watched as much as I wanted, I, I've certainly looked at his career and having watched the, you know, the first film that you asked me to and, and, and gone through that sort of arc and then knowing what happened following Spartacus, it, it's very much, I think, um, the sort of uh, film that sort of broke the mold for him and yeah. changed, if, if you like, the course, the traje- trajectory of his uh, of his career moving forward well exactly and if it wasn't for spikers we wouldn't have got lolita yes or we wouldn't have got um dr strangelove we wouldn't have got 2001 and we wouldn't have got clockwork orange and we wouldn't have got barry linden and we wouldn't have got the shining and we wouldn't have got full metal jacket and even though people don't like it we wouldn't have got eyes wide shut try eyes wide shut again folks it's not that bad it's in fact it's quite good <laughs> yeah. so yeah well, it's like it's like all Kubrick films it grows on yeah so well that's go back and watch it again. yeah that's so true and i mean you know that would sum up my feeling of Kubrick. definitely is he was someone you know i'm not gonna lie uh when i was younger i didn't get it and i didn't really see what all the fuss was about but you know as i got greater appreciation for films and started to study and look at his films in more detail you, you, you know i um i you know obviously totally respect the man what he did and what he bought but uh, but at the same time i can understand if people it, it's not everybody's cup of tea and i can i can see that too so interesting yeah <laughs> and uh i want to end on a quote Oh, go for it! It's always good to end on a quote. <laughs> it is something we might actually keep from uh, from Clive. Oh, okay. But um, when Kubrick was asked by some young people about how they should uh, get into filmmaking, his reply was, "Make films." I like that. 
short to the point. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and and true. So, <laughs> yes. So that was uh episode eleven of our podcast. But I'm we're 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 chalking them up now. And uh we're gonna end in our usual manner. So um you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. Uh, just look, search for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And we are on Twitter, at Movie Heaven Hell. And Keith, how can we find your work? Yeah, well, first, first of all, I know we have got a few new listeners. And all I'd say is thank you. And please do spread the word that way. And, uh, yeah, if you want to see any of my work or any of my previous work, uh, if you go to um youtube and type in british isles spelled e-y-l-e-s as in my family name uh you will see some of my short films there that i that i've made that you can that you can watch and as always you can find my work at independentrunnings.com well that just leaves us to thank you for listening to this episode and uh look out for our next one see ya <laughs>